We're in the middle of uh, our series on Mark's Gospel and we've been uh, thinking about uh, who Jesus is and being saturated with Jesus during this time. Uh, like last week, we're actually going to be working through the whole of uh, Mark chapter 10 pretty much today, well up to verse 45 anyway, and Dean's going to read parts of that and, and because they're going to be doing his sections, he's going to sit down like Betty did last week. Sit down and relax. Uh, yeah, sit down, kick back, as long as he's got the Bible open, he'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> That'll be good. <laughs> so, uh, what about the, who, who knows this guy? If I turn it on, that might be helpful. Do you know that guy? Who's that? I am the greatest. Who said that? Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, didn't he? He said, I am the greatest. And even if people didn't know that he was the greatest, he tried to tell everyone he was the greatest. Uh, this is a quote from him. He said, I am the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was. I figured that if I said it enough, I'd convince the world that I really was the greatest. And that's pretty much what he did, didn't he? Uh, those who know Muhammad Ali, he pretty much just said that everywhere and wherever he was and whatever he did, he kept telling people he was the greatest. And uh, maybe within the boxing realm he might have been at one point in time, but I'm not sure he was ever the greatest, always. Uh, but he did have power, didn't he? He uh, had influence, he had success, and he had position. And they're the things that the world sees as being great, don't they? Power, success, and position. If you've got those three things, then the world says you are great, even possibly the greatest. Uh, well, today we're going to be looking at greatness redefined. Uh, we're going to be looking at what Jesus says about greatness and thinking about how it is to be great in the kingdom of God and how it is for us to be great as well. Uh, if you remember where we're at in Mark, uh, chapters 1 to 7 in Mark, pretty much uh, almost like Mark goes bang, 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 almost a double punch all the way through like Muhammad Ali, uh, telling us all the things why Jesus is the Messiah. Mark goes, immediately, it happened, he did this, he did that. And in a sense, he's actually piling all these things, all these miracles, all these things that Jesus did to convince people that he was the Messiah. Here's the evidence to show that he is the anointed king. And then from chapter 8 that we looked at last week, it changes tack. And Mark goes from proving that Jesus is the Messiah by what he did to showing us what type of Messiah Jesus will be. From proving that Jesus is the king, the anointed king of this world and eternally, to showing what type of king he will be. And so today we're going to be looking at what type of king Jesus will be again in Mark chapter 10 and what kingdom he's going to rule over. And we're also going to see what his citizens are to be like, us, the followers of Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be working through that together this morning. We're going to touch into the different sections and just see uh, how the story moves and how Mark's moving it forward to show us how Jesus redefines what greatness is. He flips it on its head, and quite dramatically as well. Dean, if you could read the first part for us. Uh, we're going to have a look at uh, verses 13 to 16. And we're going to be thinking about power. Be great, okay. mate. Thanks. All right. So, uh, Mark chapter ten, verse thirteen. Yep. Uh, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. 
When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? You can just see Jesus, just see Jesus there with these kids running around. And then the disciples are going, no, no, get them away, get them away. Don't do that. Don't get these kids out of here. Sometimes we might feel like that ourselves. But, you know, you could see that sort of scene going on, couldn't you? And, and it's interesting because we here in this time and age, in this world, almost idolise kids, don't we? Uh, kids are the be-all and the end-all. Kids are so held up on a pedestal these days. Or even youth, uh, to a degree, is held up on a pedestal. Uh, but that wasn't the case back in Jesus' day. Uh, today we hold kids as being the greatest thing. We almost rotate our whole lives around them. Whereas in Jesus' day, kids were actually, were, they wanted to shunt them to the side. They weren't anything really until they grew up. They were just there. And when they grew up, then that's when they were really important. That's when they became significant. But at this point in time, they're not. Uh, and, and that's funny, isn't it? Because we tend to do the opposite. And when it comes to age, back in Jesus' time, the older you got, the better, the more wise, the more wisdom you had, and the more power you had. The older you got. The younger you were, no good. Whereas we're almost the opposite, aren't we? The youth seem to control society today, to a degree. And everything's about being younger. Uh, I was chatting at the back last week with Dean, and Dean turned 40 uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Woohoo! Doesn't look a day over 39, does he? Uh, he turned 40, and we were t- chatting about that, and uh, I was, we were talking about you know, how we're getting older, and I said, I'm not that far off 50. And I said, mate, it's all right, don't worry. Uh, 40's the new 30, and 50's the new 40, isn't it? You know, we just want to bring it back, don't we? We want to be on the younger age range all the time, pull it back. Uh, where in Jesus' time, it was quite different to that. Uh, back then, kids were put to the side. The older you got, the more wise you were, and the more power you had. And so the disciples didn't want the kids there because they weren't the ones that had power. They wanted to push them to the side, get them out of the way. That wasn't what it was about. But Jesus flips it on his head, doesn't he? Jesus says it's not about power about dependence Jesus says unless you come to me like one of these little children then you will not inherit the kingdom of God and what does he mean by that just to be enthusiastic and running up and what no no he's not saying that is he what are kids kids are dependents aren't they if you go to put out a form and talks about who you are uh, your name your number of dependents that you have they're the people that rely on you to be able to survive in this world. Uh, many, 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 many moons ago, we had kids, uh, little babies. And I can remember when those babies came, came into this world, they were totally dependent on Karina and a little bit on me, but totally dependent on Karina. That's what Jesus is saying over here about the little children. He says to us, that the kingdom of God is not about power. It's not about having all this up here. It's actually about being totally dependent on me. 
It's about us putting our hand into his hand and allowing him to lead us. That's what kids do, don't they? Don't you love it when you can grab that little kid's hand and you lead them along the street and you lead them over the road? Because they're safe, aren't they? They're safe when they're in your hands. They're totally dependent on you. If they didn't have your hand, push, they'll be off. Causing mayhem on the streets. Jesus says to us, greatness has been redefined. It's not about power. It's about dependence. It's about total dependence on me. Well, if it's not power, then maybe it's success. Is that what life's all about? Is that the business? Have you got the power? Have you got the success? Well, let's have a look at the next part of uh, Jesus' uh, teaching and uh, his life and Mark's there. We're going to go from verses uh, from there, 17 down to 31 for us, Dean. It's a little bit longer, this one. It's a longer story, uh, but you'll get the idea as we work through and look out for how Jesus redefined success in this one as well. Okay, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked on him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me has the gospel, uh, for, and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and then with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Back in Jesus' day, uh, if you had money, if you were successful, then you were seen as being blessed by God. Uh, in Jesus' time, money equaled blessed. Uh, and if you had money, then you were successful and God had been giving you this and you were put up on a pedestal and you are seen as being successful and you are seen as being getting into heaven. That's why the disciple says, who on earth can get into heaven if a rich person can't get there? Because that was the sign that they'd been blessed by God, that they were right with God, that they had everything. Somehow that was the way it worked. Some people are still peddling that today, aren't they? 
But Jesus flips that on his head, doesn't he? He says quite the opposite to that. We get this guy who comes on the scene. He's a successful guy. He's a rich guy, isn't he? And he's a moral guy. This guy isn't a bad bloke. He's not some tycoon that's ripping off people all over the place. This is actually a really good guy. He's followed the Ten Commandments. He's done the good stuff, hasn't he? He's done the right things. He's been a really good bloke. He's a successful guy. And then Jesus challenges him, doesn't he? But before he challenges him, do you see what Jesus said? He loved him. That's a beautiful, that's a funny little phrase, isn't it? Remember last week, chapter 8, Jesus had compassion on the people around him. This week, Jesus loved him. Do you notice that Jesus' great desire for those people that are around him is not to drive them away, but to welcome them in and to show them what this kingdom is going to be like and to be part of it. And so as he loves this guy, he knows this guy's heart and he knows where he stands and then he nails it, he doesn't he? He says, well, I know you've been a really moral guy. You're a good guy. But there's one thing you haven't got quite right, have you? He's so successful and rich, he can't give that up and follow Jesus. And then Jesus says to him, that, that, that just throws everything into chaos for the disciples. They think, what's going on here? And then Jesus gives that great demonstration, doesn't he? He says, it's so hard, it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He got the guys there and he said, push harder. Get him through this eye of the needle. You see, this story that Jesus is saying here, he says it's actually literally impossible no one is going to get through the eye of a noodle, he says here. If the rich people can't get through an eye of a noodle that you think they should do because you think that they're blessed by God because they're moral and doing good, no, no, they can't. And neither can you. There's been stories going around sometimes, hasn't there, that there was a gate called uh, the eye of a needle in the wall of Jerusalem. There never was and there never is uh, because it wasn't about actually getting rid of stuff and somehow making your way into it. Jesus is saying the exact opposite to that. He's saying he's giving a picture that this could not happen even on its by itself. He can't get a camel through an idol. It's absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? But then God comes, Jesus comes in after him and says, well, what's impossible for man is possible for God God's going to make it possible for the camel to go through the eye of the needle for the rich man to be saved and for everyone to be saved but we're not quite there yet he's going to build up in it doesn't he because he goes through doesn't he he says it's not about success it's not about money it's not about wealth it's about trusting in God it's about him, putting your trust in him. Remember the first one is total dependence on God. This is trusting in God. It's giving our lives to him. Because you see, the ladders that we climb, how bad it would be, wouldn't it, if you climb the ladder to success thinking you're going to make it, but there's nothing at the end of it. It's not about climbing the ladder. It's about trusting in God. This king wants us to be totally dependent on him and to trust him in everything. To trust God. So if it's not power, if it's not success, 
Maybe position is what's going to get us into eternity. Maybe that's what it's like for those who follow Jesus. Maybe that's the way that we should be seeking to live our lives. Well, let's have a look at the next part that Jesus talks about. Is it having position, having the power? Let's have a look. Uh, This passage, we're going to flip across to verse 35. And you might say, he's missed a couple of verses. Hasn't he? Is he just doing a bit of a dwindle on us here? What's he trying to muck it? Anyway, we'll come back to them. You'll see how they fit in the picture in just a moment. Okay, verse 35. Uh, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Um, Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Sorry, N45. Uh, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thanks, Dean. Uh, power or position. Where does it go? Well, John there, doesn't he? He talks about they've got the two guys. Uh, they come up to Jesus, James and John. They're very ambitious guys. Uh, they're thinking, even still now, they're thinking that when Jesus comes to his kingdom, he's going to set up a new reign of David in Jerusalem And what does a king need? A king needs a good right hand and a left hand, doesn't he? He needs two people beside him in the position of power, position of authority, position where they can influence. And so James and John, they're pretty ambitious young blokes and they decide that they're going to ask Jesus if they can sit on his left and his right. Uh, Just the other week when I was in uh, Sydney and I was at our retreat, the guys down there decided that they're going to play a game of 500. I don't know 500 very well. Who knows 500 very well? A few of you know how 500 works. Well, it's an interesting game. I didn't win, which is not good because I'm very competitive. But the way that 500 works is you've got to basically get rid of all your cards and win tricks uh, to get your way through to be able to do this. But one of the things that happens in 500 is that if you've got, say, uh, hearts of trumps, that is hearts of the cards that you want to be playing and they're the better, better cards, Uh, you actually find out that you have a left and a right bow. Uh, That's the jack of hearts and the jack of diamonds. And they become your second most powerful cards. Or third, depending on how you look at it. Uh, But pretty much they become the most really powerful cards when you're playing 500. And that's where this idea of left and right comes from. Your left bow and your right bow. The one that sits beside the most powerful, they are the next powerful. They're in the right positions. And that's what James and John are asking for, to be the right and left bow to Jesus. That they're in the position there where they can sit and rule over the kingdom that Jesus brings into position. 
And what does Jesus do to that? He flips that on his head as well, doesn't he? He's amazing. He just says, that is not how it's going to work in my kingdom. That is not how I roll. And that is not how you're going to roll in the kingdom of. Now look at verse 42, 43 there. Not so with you. So that may be the way the world operates. That may be the way that Rome operates. That may be the way that you've operated in Israel in the past. But that is not how you're going to operate now. Because that is not how I operate. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want a memory verse, one that you want to hang on to, verse 45 is a great one, isn't it? Because it tells us what Jesus is like and it demonstrates what we're to be like. It's what this king is going to be like. This king is going to give his life up for ours and to serve us and that's a life that we are to live. A life of giving up our lives for others. To serve others around us. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, it's a beautiful verse, isn't it? Because what it's saying here is that in this world, if you want to roll like Jesus rolls, then you're going to live a self-sacrificing, loving life. Because that's what Jesus does. He's going to give up his life, self-sacrificing his life for ours. He's going to pay the price for you and I. The ransom here, that's what that word ransom means. Ransom back in uh, those days, we think of it a lot today, don't we, about a terrorist or a hostage situation where it's paid over. Uh, back then it was more to do with a slave or a servant where they've been paid and set free to live the life that they're supposed to live. So that they can be free to live for him. And how does Jesus do that? That's where, well, that's where verse two, 32 comes in, doesn't it? So that ransom that Jesus makes, we see exactly what it's going to look like in verse 32. Uh, Dean, do you want to read that through to us, to 34? 32, yep. Um, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And uh, again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, this is the third time Jesus has said this, in three chapters almost. Three times he's telling them that this is what the king, the king that I am, is going to be like. I'm a king that's going to give up my life for you. A king that's going to be spat upon, mocked, flogged, crucified, but then rise again so that we can be set free, so that we can have life, so that they can have life. The possible, the impossible is made possible, isn't it? You see, this is where the camel goes through the eye of the needle, guys. 
This is where it all comes to fruition. You know, what is impossible, Jesus just said earlier back there, becomes possible in Jesus. He's the one that gets us through the eye of the needle. He's the one that brings us out into eternity. He's the one that pays the penalty for us, the ransom for us. Our sin, our transgressions, our rebellion against God that has tied us up and binds us up and keeps us from a relationship with him and keeps us from being in his kingdom is broken by him at the cross. And we're set free to live for him. Sometimes I don't think we gather the the enormity of that, do we? Because I think we just walk around the world that we live in and we think we're pretty free. But we're not, guys. We're not at all. Unless we put our trust in Jesus. We're bound by all sorts of things that want to control us and keep us and hold us and tie us down and drive us away from him and destroy us and wreck our lives and wreck our eternity. But Jesus steps into it and pays the price for us and sets us free with self-sacrificing love. Uh, That's Dumbledore and Harry Potter, if you can pick that. Uh, If you've read the books or watched the movies, you'll know that what happens in Harry Potter is that uh, that Harry Potter's mum, Lily, gives up her life to save Harry. Voldemort, the arch-villain, comes to kill him uh, and she steps in the way and she dies for him and Harry gets a scar on his head that's a continual reminder of what has happened. And as as you go through the books, uh, you work out that Voldemort tries all sorts of ways to get Harry. And sometimes he even possesses different people to try and kill Harry, but none of them can. None of them get to him. And sometimes when they come to try and kill him, they get excruciating pain. They can't kill him. They cannot get to him. And Harry, really early on, says to Dumbledore, he says, why is that the case? Well, look at what Dumbledore's answer is to Harry. Love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. To have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. Did you ever know the gospel was in Harry Potter? You see, love protects, doesn't it? Love protects Harry. And Jesus is saying his love for us, his self-sacrificing love for us, doesn't just protect us for a short period of time, but protects us for eternity takes us into eternity and gives us life forever. His self-sacrificing love is a love that changes things, doesn't it? It changes us. It changes everything. And self-sacrificing love is the only type of love that changes anything, isn't it? You see, greatness is being redefined by Jesus here. It's not about power. It's not about success. It's not about possession. position. It's about servant trusting, dependent love on Jesus. It's about knowing that self-sacrificing love that he's paid for us and then going and living that out in the world around us. And if you're a parent, you know what that's like, don't you? We've got to give up a whole lot for our kids at times, don't we? We go into whole lots of things so that they can be and launch them out into the world. 
If we were just selfish looking after our own stuff and doing our own thing, then we may not pay the costs at that point in time, but it's going to be costly for our kids, isn't it? You see, self-sacrificing love has a cost and it changes everything. Changes us. Changes the people around us. And that's what Jesus says. If you want to roll the way I roll, if you're going to know this is the type of king that I'm going to be, then this is the type of follower you are to be. Someone who seeks to be self-sacrificing and loving others. And self-sacrificing love takes us away from being needy people to being able to love people. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? When we know this, when we know what Jesus has done for us, when we know who we are in him, when we understand that it's being dependent upon him, trusting in him, that he's given his life in a self-sacrificing way for you and I, then it changes how we are to live. Because we then go from being needy people to being loving people. We go from being people who are needy for power to be able to lord it over people, to be able to control people, to being able to love people. We go from being needy people who want success to be who we are and we'll step on anyone and we'll climb the rung of the ladder to get there. We'll push aside our friends as long as we're the most popular person at school. We'll, we'll push aside the people that we work with so that we get to the proper position. We'll push aside the people that are in our bowling club so that I can be president. And we move from that, from people that are after and needy for success to loving our friends seeking what's best for them to being in a workplace where we want to encourage others to get forward and go forward as well to being in our bowls club where we are being uh, serving one another and that may be present but we go from being needy people to being loving people we go from people from being needing for position needing to be at the right or the left of someone who's in power needing to be in that person you know well maybe I need to get beside that person so that I can be better off in this community. If I'm seen with these type of people, then I'm going to be looked on better. You see, when we understand and know that Jesus' self-sacrificing love for us has ransomed us and set us free from being needy people, we can be loving people. That redefines greatness, doesn't it? Jesus redefines how we look at the world, redefines how we live in the world. Because now we live as servants, self-sacrificing, loving servants, not needy, success-driven, position-driven, powerful-driven, but loving, serving as Jesus loved and served us. That's how we're going to be great, guys. That is what it is to be great in the kingdom of God. That is how our great king has served you and I. So let's go out and do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you this morning, Lord, and as we think of the passages that we've just looked at and think of all that you've been uh, teaching us in that, Lord, and we take a moment to 
sit back and contemplate it. We pray that your spirit will work in our lives and in our hearts and remove anything that is stopping us from being loving, self-sacrificing people, Lord. Anything that is within us that is making us needy. Remove it from us, Lord, because, Lord, you have done that on the cross for us. You have set us free. You have ransomed us. You've taken the punishment for our sin and our rebellion against you. You've paid the price and set us free to live self-sacrificing lives, Lord, the way that you lived your life for us. Lord, we can't do it by ourselves. Uh, It's impossible by ourselves, Lord, but you are the God who makes things possible, Lord. And Lord, we see that in your Son, Jesus. And Lord, we know that that's what you desire for us as well. So Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, transform us. Help us to see this world through your eyes and that we see greatness as redefined by you. Lord, help us to go out and live in this world as not needy people, but as loving people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.